that was certainly wonderful to see, uh, the baptism, the joining. I, I hope that, um, like you, uh, you, like me, have uh, dried your eyes enough to get through. That was uh, just, just amazing. Um, but I could see you coming in here and saying, but is it really necessary? And sure, it was, it was wonderful and emotional to see, but is it necessary? And even what we're doing now, is this necessary? Is it necessary for us to come together as a, as a church in a very formal, even institutional way? Is it really necessary to do what we have done this morning, to stand up and sit down and to kneel and to get up again and to do, go through all the motions, to say prayers that are written down, to, in a, a few moments, uh, participate in this meal together because it seems a lot of formalism and ritual. Most of us today are skeptical of whether it's really necessary. Wouldn't God rather have a religion of the heart? It doesn't matter so much what we do on the externals, but what is in the inside counts, a worship that's authentic and, and personal. We want to relate to God in any place, not just coming together and worshiping him in an institution like this, but in our own expression. Do we really need these traditional expressions? They are man-made, aren't they? Can't we just come to God on our own terms? The problem with coming to God on our own terms, though, is that we are never sure and can never be sure that God would accept our terms. What if instead of coming to God on our terms moves us rather than closer to God as actually moving us away from God? How would we know that in coming to him on our own terms, we're actually finding the God that will save us? But what if... What if these things aren't man-made? What if the things that we've seen and participated in this morning are actually given by Christ, designed by God, in a very intentional way, crafted over centuries, for us to come to him on his terms, to actually know where we stand with him, not for us to grope in the dark to maybe find a real God, but for him to come to us and to show us the way in which we can know him. I think in that, we see the very point of this passage this morning in Colossians. As he, as Paul, writing this letter, brings together both circumcision and baptism, framing them not as our response to God, not as our chosen way to, to communicate to a watching world where we stand, but actually God's way, his terms. It's important for us, for all of us, it's important for those who aren't baptized to hear this and to get a sense of what baptism actually means. And then for us who have been baptized and maybe have not understood what it means, to actually grasp it 
and more than that, to even live in light of what the significance should be in our lives and how it should inform us. It is a complicated passage. There's a lot here. And if we were to approach it on our own terms, we would certainly miss it. But let's come to God and ask his blessing on it. Will you pray with me now? Father, we thank you so much that um, you did not leave it up to us, but you broke into this world. You didn't just leave uh, creation itself to guide us to you, but you spoke. You didn't remain silent. You showed us and you gave us ways to know you. Bless us now as we consider these very clear ways and help us in that to draw close to you. We pray through Jesus' name. Amen. In this passage, um, we see that Paul brings together circumcision and baptism, demonstrating that they're both given in many ways for a similar purpose. But why? What's the significance? Let's look at each of them. Let's first start at, with, uh, with circumcision. What on earth did it mean? Why did God give it to his people? I'm going to look at three, way, three things about circumcision that, uh, that define it and explain it to us. The first is that, in many ways, circumcision showed you where you are in relationship to God. It showed you and defined you. It, it certainly defined you and set you apart from other nations and other uh, uh, religions in the world, set you apart as God people, but it also set you apart in relation to God. It was sort of like God's GPS where you could see that you appeared on his map. I, uh, I don't know if you have the app Find My Friends on your phone. Some of you do. Uh, it's, uh, Christy and I have a, you know, it's basically a little a map of, of the area and a little GPS dot that shows you where you are. And then if you have a friend who you do this with, then a little GPS dot on where they are. And then, you know, you can figure out how far uh, away you are from each other. Um, Christy sometimes uses that to make sure I get places safely. Uh, a few uh, years ago, uh, I was in a late night meeting in Hartford and she, you know, checking to make sure I got there safely, sees my little GPS dot in the middle of a lake somewhere. It's a little worried then, you know, the understanding that these aren't always accurate. I was not in a lake, I was okay. Um, but in many ways, that's what Paul's trying to explain to the Colossians when he describes what they were like without Christ before they came to Christ, he, ba he's basically saying, You're, you were off the map. Verse 13, you were dead in your uncircumcision. You know, you're not even registering with God. You're not, just, you're not even on a lake somewhere. You're, you're off the map. Even more than that, you're dead. You're dead to God. That is a warning to us. Those who try to come to God on our own terms, could we actually be off of God's map and dead to him? It's possible that on your own, apart from him, you could find God, he could reveal himself to you, you could be connecting with the God of the universe, but you never will know. And we set ourselves up for the great risk 
that we have been ignoring the very things that God has created to help us relate to him. And so this is what circumcision means, that God marks you out on his map, but, you know, it wasn't to be presumptuous. We weren't to presume, even if you were on his map, it didn't presume that that you were actually spiritually in a good place. There were many people we would see in Israel who were circumcised, who were part of God's family, but who were distant from him, who who fell into idolatry, and and oftentimes God would punish the people and and, uh, explain how they had been distant from him. The physical sign wasn't to presume that that you were part of God, uh, that you were saved, in, in other words, but it was to say that all these promises of God are for you, that you belong. If you were circumcised, you know you knew that you belonged to this covenant. And I can say that now to kids. If you've been baptized, you may never remember your baptism. It may have been when you were an infant, but you know that you were. That these promises are for you. They're for you. They're your promises. Waiting for you to respond to them in faith. And own them. In the Bible, this relationship that God has with his people is called a covenant. It's the way that God binds himself to a certain people. You see, God doesn't just make promises out there with his words. He goes even further and he gives us signs and seals of the covenant. Confirming this relationship to them. We saw that in in Genesis 17 in that that Old Testament passage where uh, that's the the end of a long, uh, several chapters beginning in chapter 12 where God is making promises. He's making this covenant with Abraham. And and we see in in, uh, Genesis 12 that he says, Abraham, I am going to bless you. And I'm going to give you all this land. And you you get a picture of the promised land that was to come. But even more than that, he says, I am going to bless all the nations of the earth through your offspring, through you. And when we get to Genesis 17, he then uh, makes this covenant enacted, a reality, by circumcision. He gives Abraham the sign of circumcision. But here's here's the key about this. The circumcision wasn't a sign pointing back to the real thing. It wasn't just a symbol to represent something that was uh, verbally said. It actually was the enacting of the covenant. It was putting it in place. Circumcision created it. So much so that the word to make a covenant is the word cut. To cut a covenant And in Genesis 17, if you heard it there, God tells Abraham that circumcision is my covenant in your flesh. You didn't just hear it in your ears, but now it's marked your body, your flesh. And then we have to ask what probably was the question of many Israelites back then. Why on earth this symbol? And maybe you're thinking about this as we enter into maybe an awkward 
part of the sermon as I describe circumcision. Why this? Why couldn't it be like a tattoo or a, like a fancy hairdo or something? Why, why does it have to be cutting the foreskin of every male? Well, first, it's a sign on the male reproductive organ because this promise wasn't just to Abraham. It's not an individualistic thing. It's not even just a male thing. If that is get caught up in your mind that it's only for males, no, the covenant was for all. It was all for Abraham's descendants. But it takes male plus female to have descendants. And so it was this, it was this sign at the very point of conception that there would be a cutting, the, the sign of the covenant, saying all the children that would come from this would be cut off. But even if you heard in that passage in, in Genesis 17, it wasn't just physical children. This idea that the authority of the parent was, was, was giving the, bringing the children in and the whole household would bear this sign. It was more than just Abraham. But let's not miss the reality here. There was cutting going on. It, it was almost essential in any covenant in the ancient world that cutting would happen at the time of a, of a covenant. A great king would make his a covenant and his promises to his people, the relationship that he had. And it was, you know, other nations outside of Israel had this. And when they were making that promise, they would, they would cut animals. They would have a sacrifice. We even see this in Genesis 15 along this same section where God's making these promises to Abraham. He tells Abraham to slice up animals and he puts one half of the animal on one side and one half on the other side. And God himself passes through the animals in this remarkable act by the living God to say, if I don't back up what I just said, then may it be like these animals. May I be like these animals, dead. And the living God broken into two pieces and dead if I don't fulfill my promise. We say it very lightly and cross my heart, hope to die. But it's that same sense of binding yourself. A covenant wasn't a covenant really until cutting, until blood. So that's the second point. We see the imagery of circumcision. The first is that it puts us in relationship with God. It, it shows us where we stand with him it, as his people. The second is that circumcision was a symbol of death blood and death. You were falling under judgment. The knife of circumcision is really the sword of death. Our passage in Colossians even understands this. As Paul is trying to explain this, you almost get the sense he's trying to explain it so fast, he even just mixes the terms. In, in verse 11, he says, the progression goes circumcision to burial to resurrection. <laughs> but typically you go death, burial, and resurrection. But he goes circumcision, burial, and resurrection because he understood they were the same. Circumcision equaled death. 
It's a sign of death. It's this strange thing. The people of God in the Old Testament, it's like they were, they were asked to carry around their tombstone their entire lives. Asked to carry around in their flesh a sign of death and the sword of judgment. You know, I, I enjoy the times when we have a chance to trace themes all the way through Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation. We don't have time to do all that here uh, in this passage. Uh, we did it a few years ago, uh, maybe it was last year or a year before, in a Sunday school class where we showed trajectories and we looked at everywhere the temple appeared, from Genesis to Revelation, and saw this great thread over the centuries that the Bible was written of this consistent use of the imagery of what a temple was. We saw the same thing with day of the Lord and, and creation and new creation. I would love to take time and show this theme of the sword throughout Scripture, and particularly God, whenever he or the angel of the Lord is wielding a sword. It's there often guarding the promise of heaven. The idea is that uh, humanity in our sinful condition cannot get to the presence of a holy God. Our sin prevents us from getting all the blessings that would come to be connected to the Lord of life. And so there is a sword barring the way. We see this in Genesis. Adam and Eve sin. God removes them from the garden. But what does God do? He sets up in front of the tree of life, an angel of the Lord with a flaming sword guarding the way. You cannot get back to that tree of life unless you pass through a sword. And then as the Israel, the people of God, go try to enter the promised land, in, in Joshua chapter 5, they're about to enter, enter Jericho and, and do battle with them, taking possession of the land. And who do they meet? An angel of the Lord with a sword the, uh, the great bouncer of the promised land. You can't get in unless you go past the sword. Even in Abraham's family, you think about Isaac. Yeah, Abraham holds the sword. He holds the knife above Isaac. But it's under God's command in Genesis 22. Isaac has to pass through the sword to get to salvation. And you have this great mystery in the Old Testament. How can grace be on the other side of judgment? How can the promised land and all the blessings that God has be on the other side of the sword? And that's the third image that we should get from circumcision. First, that it, it relates you to God. Circumcision shows you where you are in relation to him. Secondly, it's a sign of death. But thirdly, mysteriously, it's a redemptive death. It's a redemptive judgment. That going through this sword is the way to the blessings that God has for you. And it stays this mystery in the Old Testament. But if we have all that in mind, I actually think now we can understand what Paul is saying in verse 11 when he talks about the circumcision of Christ. For in that, he doesn't mean a circumcision that Christ gives to people. 
And he doesn't mean the circumcision that Christ got as an eight-day-old baby. No, he's talking about Christ being under the knife, under the sword of judgment. Christ being cut off. Christ is circumcised fully at the crucifixion. On the cross, he took the judgment. On the cross, he was cut off. On the cross, he died. When Paul says that the circumcision is made without hands, he's not talking about a heart circumcision. There is heart circumcision in the Old Testament, this idea of being born again and new. But, but without hands is, is kind of Bible shorthand by saying it was by God. To say something is done without hands is to say that God's doing it. Christ is circumcised without hands, meaning on the cross it was God who took the sword of judgment and brought it down on Christ. Circumcision, the symbol of death, redemptive death, pointing to Christ and what he accomplishes on the cross. Amazing thing that this passage is saying now as, as Paul wants to bring this all into the Colossian church and even to us now as we listen to this is that if you're in Christ, you now have been circumcised. You now are part of the people of God. If you have Christ, you're connected to Christ's death. How? He says it in verse 12. We have been buried with him in baptism. Remember what I said about circumcision. It's not simply just the a symbol pointing to the words, it actually seals the covenant. It actually enacts it. It creates the relationship. That's what he's saying. If you've been baptized, now you're baptized into his death. You're, you're fused to Christ's death. He'll say this in Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him in baptism, into death. Whereas circumcision was a sign of death and judgment by sword or by knife, baptism is a sign of judgment and death by virtue of water. Now some of you may be thinking, really water? Water doesn't really seem that scary. Um, how can that be a sign of judgment? If you ask, how can water be a sign of judgment? I assume that you've never owned a home. <laughs> Had our house for 10 years. Water is a sign of judgment. <laughs> Bad leaky pipes. Had windows where it seems like it's, you know, a waterfall coming down our windows. We had to put a drain in our backyard because the, the water, when it rained really hard, would just flow right into our first level. That's not just messy, right? I mean, it... it like messes with the foundation and it can destroy a home. It's a sign of judgment. And in the Bible, it's the same way, right? We know. However nice we like to put the Noah story in nurseries and have Noah smiling with all these friendly animals, I mean, <laughs> everybody else was not smiling. 
It was God's judgment on the world, bringing water down. Moses taking the people of God through the Red Sea is an amazing image. These walls of water on either side, giving the ability for, uh, for uh, Moses to lead the people through the water. But then the water comes crashing down on the Egyptians, judging them and destroying them. Water is a sign of judgment. And it doesn't matter the, the, the amount of it. When it says buried with baptism, you know, how do they bury? They didn't, sometimes you think, well, don't you have to immerse, go under, and then come up? Well, no, you know, Jesus was buried in a tomb, like go sideways and then out. Uh, the word can also be used, as it does in Hebrews, for sprinkling. It's not the amount of water. It's the sign of water. It's a sign of water to invoke judgment. And so we have these two symbols, two sacraments, both signs of God's judgment. But why did God change it? Why did God move it from the Old Testament symbol of circumcision to the New Testament one of baptism from one death to another? Well, it's there in verse 12. You were buried with Christ in baptism. You, you were dead with him. But in this baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith. And baptism is not just death. It's not just a symbol of redemptive death. It actually does bring redemptive death to you. But you go into death and out the other side into life. It's a sign of passing through death and passing through judgment. You're united now to Christ. You've been buried with him. It's like being connected to Christ. You are like entering the ark. And you're going now through the judgment waters, making your way through the other side. You've passed through the sword of judgment. And now for you is the tree of life. Baptism, like circumcision, a sign of judgment, but also a sign of death and new life. And it should stay with us. Our baptism should stay with us our entire lives. If your parents have brought you into baptism as a, as a young child, it should stay with you your entire life. Just like the Israelites carried around that sign of judgment to you, you should carry around your baptism, this sign of your death and your new life. What would it mean to do that? You see, baptism isn't simply our response to something God's done. Our baptism isn't us saying, oh, great, I want to show the world as a testimony that I am now a Christian. I mean, that's the benefit of it. it. We do proclaim it that way. But baptism isn't something we do. It's something done to us. You know, Mary didn't come over there and go to the water and just put it on herself. Nobody baptizes themselves. And though a minister does it, the whole point is that it's God 
who baptizes, just as it was God who circumcises. God does this. God put that in your life, no matter how young you were, whether you did it 40 years ago or four minutes ago, God did that, and now it's you in your life to respond to what God did. Baptism is in our response to God and his promises. Baptism is something we respond to. This reality that he creates for us. So what does it look like to respond? How would we respond? Well, the first thing that we should do every single day as we acknowledge and remember our baptism is to look in the mirror and say, you are dead. You're dead. You know, sometimes we hear the gospel as this great news that uh, you don't have to die. And we sing about it. It's great. Jesus died, so you don't have to. And man, I'm going to say it's even better news to say Jesus died, and so did you. You're now dead. And that has a freedom to it unlike anything you can experience apart from Christ. Because alive apart from Christ, then you're standing on your own. And the record of all the things that you've done are on your shoulders. And you are susceptible to them. They threaten to undo you, to point out your weaknesses and your failings. And you spend most of your life trying to cover that up, trying to prevent the accusations trying not to get overwhelmed with the debt that you have. I mean, debt is something that Paul uses here. I think uh, it's a concept many of you can relate to, <laughs> whether it's school debt that you're trying to pay off or credit card debt or a mortgage that you have. I mean, debt can get overwhelming. It hangs over your head. If you've ever had significant debt, it is a way that it feels like it restricts you, that it determines your future. But of course, the debt he's talking about here is deeper than financial debt. It's moral debt. It's spiritual debt. It's debt to our identity, which is shame. And we experience that debt apart from Christ. Accusations come, and we can do nothing about it because we know the truth. Have you had, you know, I'm sure we all had those people who just, whether they intended or not, they hit a nerve. They hit the thing that we're most vulnerable about. That bit of shame that we wish we could just cover over. The thing that we fear about ourselves, that getting out. And our reaction is anger or fear or anxiety. All of those things apart from Christ constantly weigh us down. Every accusation has this grounding in truth. Everything has a potential to un unravel and un unveil the things that we've been hiding. But what he is saying here in your baptism, God is saying that, that not only did you get wet, but God has drowned that old life. He has put it to death. And if it's dead, if you are dead, then no one can have an accusation against you. What would it mean to be dead? 
It would mean saying with Paul in Romans, who can bring any charge against God's elect? No one can hit a nerve. Because they start exposing things, and then you can say, yes, that's true. But I'm dead. That old man has died. It can't take anything from you. We can talk back to, the, to those outside of us who might accuse us to knock down our self-worth, to make us feel small and low, pointing out things that are true. We can talk back to the voices in our head that, that keep bringing up conversations that we've had that we know we wish we could take back or uh, decisions we've made that we're, we're sinful, that we we're play in our head day after day after day and wish in replaying them somehow we could change what happened. Or the great accuser himself, Satan, bringing before us all the record of our wrongs. You know, the, what, what is happening here is not a way that we say, well, let's just pretend it didn't happen. Let's cover it over. Let's ignore it. The gospel doesn't say that God isn't going to count your sins, but that he counted every one of them, and he nailed it to the cross, crucifying it. All the things that meant to bring accusation, all the rulers and the authorities that were there to expose you, and to condemn you. They're all the same rulers and authorities there to condemn and, and expose Christ. Listen to what Paul says in verse 15. That God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The very thing they thought was going to shame Christ was the very thing that shamed them and undid them. Martin Luther, the, the great reformer of 500 years ago, um, has this catechism that he gave for Christians. And on the section on baptism, it's this wonderful conclusion. He says, when sins come up to oppress us, when our conscience bothers us, what should we do? What should we do under that overwhelming guilt? Should we, you know, medicate it? <laughs> should we push it aside? Should we ignore it? No, Luther says you can acknowledge it, but then say this, nevertheless, I am baptized. I love that. Yeah, I, I understand what you just said about me. It's true. Nevertheless, I'm baptized. I died. I died. You can't bring that accusation against me anymore. But of course, you haven't just died. You haven't just died in the waters of judgment. You have passed through the sword. You're out the other side of death. You have new life. God made you alive together with him. You unite to Christ, not just in his death, but also in his resurrection. And we get to experience that now. That new life is for you to live out in the freedom that we have of living in Christ's righteousness. To respond to your baptism is to live in that reality. To know peace and security. Not because we've got it on our own anxiety and our own control and our own trying to manage life. We get peace and security because we know that we have that through Christ. 
who's done everything to give us this new life. We have dignity and worth now, not because on our own we made a place and a name for ourselves and worked our way onto God's map. We have dignity and worth now because through Christ, we now have that new identity. We are on God's map, and it's not in some lake somewhere. God has put our GPS dot in his home and given us the right to be called children of God. That's your identity now. That's your new life. That's why coming to God on his terms is so much better than coming on our own terms. We come in his terms. And we have finally a way to pass through judgment into blessing. And we can have confidence that this is the life for us. Whether you've been baptized as a little baby or as an adult, you have in that God's pledge to you, his offer of redemption and life. And it's our call now to respond to that with faith, to trust it, to claim these promises for ourselves, and to live in the reality that you have died, and in Christ you have a new life. Let's pray.